Every book tells two stories. The first is the tale inside the page. The second is a story about its reader. Each book that we choose to keep on our shelves tells a chapter in the story of our lives. So join me, Alex Cool, as I speak to authors, illustrators, publishers and booksellers about their shelf life. On this episode of Shelf Life, I am joined by Millie Johnson, the award-winning author of nearly 20 novels, including The Yorkshire Pudding Club and My One True North. Her latest novel explores what life is like for the sandwich generation. Thank you for joining us, Millie. Oh, it's a pleasure, an absolute pleasure. Why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about The Woman in the Middle and what you mean by the sandwich generation? Um, I I think many... Uh, mainly women, I'm going to say. I'm going to put it out there and say that it's mainly women. Uh, had been operating between looking after elderly parents and also looking after children as well, not realising that there were so many other people out there doing the same job until some scientist, uh, some woman, uh, coined the phrase the sandwich generation. And suddenly, because it had a tag on it, people were saying, oh, my goodness, that's me. And um, especially... Um, I think the, the age range is round about kind of 35 to 55 of, of women who maybe had their children not so young and the parents didn't have them so young. In my case, I had my kids in my 30s. My mum was in her 30s as well. So even though we're knocking on a bit and we're hammered by the menopause as if you haven't got enough to deal with, you're also looking after um, elderly parents who are fast becoming your children you know, it's you making the decisions, which is an upset of world order. And at the same time, you've got kids who are going out into the world and saying, ah, you know, I'm an adult, blah, blah, leave me alone. Um, until it comes to, you know, mum, I'm broken down the road in my car, any chance of a, you know, a, of a fix up here or a lift or um, I'm a bit skint this week, any chance of a top up. So you are worrying about your parents, you're worrying about your children who are adult, but not quite, you know, I've heard it so many times, parents who say, I wish I could fast forward until they're about 30, when I feel in my heart that they're okay. Um, And you are literally squashed, you are squashed between these two pieces of bread. But it's, it's familial duty, you don't want to leave it to anybody else, so you do it. But it is knackering, it's totally exhausting. And um, I always try and find um, I always try and find a point of difference in my books. Uh, when I started writing about cross-generational friendships between women, I'd never seen any other book out there doing that. Um, and, and I wanted to write something which um, will appeal, I think, to lots of other people doing the job that I'm doing at the moment. Uh, and at the same time, it was great therapy for me, you know, working out. Because sometimes, you know, you, 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 with elderly parents, you, you have to learn a different way of talking to them, especially when they're losing their grip on reality a bit. Their truth is different to the truth, the real truth. And it's it, you have to learn to bite your tongue and, and not correct them all the time, because what does it matter if they remember there were somewhere else when Princess Diana, you know, died uh, and not where they really were. And it's, it's a different set of skill sets that you have to learn. And you never do enough. You know, the, the guilt is absolutely crippling. You never feel that you do enough. Um, I'm an only child looking after my, my, my mum as well, so I don't have the duties to split. 
and uh, and the jobs are like a hydra every time you you do one um another five will spring up all those weeds are looking a bit bad in there you know and, and uh and it's just hard and i and i wanted i wanted to write a book where women especially will will read it and think oh my god that's me i'm not by myself and, uh, and, and I like that with my books, that my readers can climb into the pages and feel and feel very much that they are part of the, the story because they're going through it as well. I hope you don't want short answers here to these questions, by the way. No, I don't. I I'm love a lot of <laughs> That's the situation that Shay finds herself in, in the one in the middle. She's looking after her mum, her dad's in a care home. Her mum has dementia, as you were saying and she has to learn to bite her tongue and not correct her. And you were saying about women reading it, and I'm not of that generation that you were talking about. I'm not part of the sandwich generation, but I read it and I loved it. So it's not, it's for everyone. Yes. It's a book that's got great appeal, but at the same time, it does appeal to that specific situation, doesn't it? It, it does, and I say women, I mean, you know, my, my dad was in the sandwich generation with looking look, after me, even though I was all right, you know, and his parents. And my mum was looking after his parents as well. But I think when, I, when I've done my research on it, um, if, if it was a, a woman and a man, the man is more likely to do all the paperwork and, and the, the stuff like that. And the woman's likely to get down on her knees and scrub the floors. You know, we're still, we're still working to these stereotypes and we can't say we aren't. But I get a lot of male readers, which I, I love because I just write as a woman. I don't specifically write for women, but I write about women and so therefore you presume that you will appeal more to women but I get an awful lot of men writing to me and saying you know I it's great to get inside a woman's head or I've been in in that situation I'm, I'm 80 year old and I've just started reading your books and and you know that's it's lovely it, it's lovely to hear that your your appeal is wider than you had perhaps intended it to be. Now, I asked you to pick seven books that changed your life or influenced it in some way. Before we go through what those books are, are you a big reader? Did you have a big pool to pick from? Riker, yes, I'm ridiculous. Um, which all writers should be readers. You know, we, we, um, we never have, we never find ourselves in a position where we haven't enough time to read. Um, and, and if you're interested in writing, you never should because you pick up by osmosis so much of style and punctuation, which I'll come to with, with a few of these books that I've picked on my list. Um, but I, I have a, a book in the loo downstairs. I have a book upstairs in my bedroom. I've got the Kindle so that if I um, go on a train or, or anything, please, please, let's go on more trains this year. <clears throat> and, and I never lose my thread, you know, having three books. And sometimes you're just in that mood for picking up your Nikki French or sometimes you're in the mood for picking up a Catherine Cookson. You know, it's it's mood um, directed. But I've always got quite a few books on the go. And of course, um, there, there are always a load of your mates who have got books coming out who want to quote on them. So I've got a massive pile here that I've just about finished. I'm alternating between them all so I can read them in tandem and produce the quotes at the end. So, yeah, big reader, big reader. And how did you then go about picking the seven books? Did, you, did they spring to mind instantly or did you have a big list that you needed to whittle down? Um, well, the, the list was bigger than it was, but it's quite easy for me to pick the ones that, that shine out from the coal, if you like, um, because 
they have been um, in my brain and um, for a very, very long time. And, um, and so, yes, these, the, I would be unfaithful, I think, if I, if I picked any of the other books that were, were clamoring on the lines going, what about me? These, these are the ones that have been real markers on my journey as to, to be a, a professional writer. Well, let's start with... <laughs> let's talk, it's not COVID. <laughs> <laughs> let's start with book one. What is it and why okay. did you choose it? Um, the first one um, is Jane Eyre. The, and it, which is, I know it's been a, a, a book on, on everybody else's, on, on lots of lists. But Jane Eyre for me was a sectet at school absolutely adored it from page one. I think it was probably partly to do with my own hormones firing up at the time and falling madly in love with Rochester. I think there's a bit of Jane Eyre in, in every book that I write, to be honest, um, because I, I loved it. I could identify with the heroine. We'd done Wuthering Heights. I couldn't identify with Catherine Earnshaw. I thought she was a total bitch. Um, Heathcliff, I hated because he, at first I thought, well, he's all right. You know, he's quite you know, a bad boy that we're supposed to like. But then he hanged a dog. Absolutely no way on this earth would I ever go with anybody who'd hanged a dog. And there was there was a, a dysfunction about that relationship that I, I couldn't get to, to grabs with. But Jane Eyre, it just had everything for me, that book. It had the supernatural. It had a heroine I could identify with. Um, it had a hero who was passionate, but not perfect by any stretch. It had um, intrigue, it had mystery, it had the beautiful big house. Um, and houses are, are great in books, you know, like Mandalay in, in Rebecca, which, which was one of the books that was going, hello, on the side. But Jane Eyre, to me, had, had everything. Uh, in fact, on the strength of Jane Eyre, um, I used to, uh, when I did get a proper job, I used to just skive off all the time and go to Haworth. I loved Haworth, wanted to live there. Um, I thought that I would discover a Bronte muse if I lived in Haworth. And, uh, and I eventually did, just jacked in my job here and just moved to Haworth. And, uh, and I must have done because, you know, that gave birth to my, my writing career. And uh, I lived there for many happy years. Uh, was married there, had a child there. Um, and, um, and Jane Eyre for me is, is the book that just, I never tire of it. You know, I've got multiple copies of Jane Eyre. My, partner's an antiques dealer. Whenever he goes out anywhere and sees a new copy I haven't got of Jane Eyre, um, I, I will have it. I, it just, I just never tire of the book. I think, it's, I think it's a beautiful story and it has got the tick happy ending for me. I loved it. So would you say that was the book that made you want to write or did you already know by then that that's what you wanted to do? I'd always wanted to write, um, but no, it wasn't. It, it, it was... It was just a book that I enjoyed. And, and if anything, I, I, it made me feel that probably I would, I wanted to be a writer who could write books like that, but it was so gorgeous and so beautiful that I, I thought I would never write books like that. And, and I still haven't, you know, it's gorgeous. It's a classic. Um, I doubt very much if people be reading the Yorkshire Pudding Club in 300 years, but you know, we live in hope. But no, it wasn't one of the books that made me want to become a writer. It was one of the books that made me feel the full gamut of emotions. And with, with any good book, I always thought I would love to write books that made other readers feel the way I felt when I read it. Because I, I went through, you know, I, I fell hook, line and sinker for Rochester. I really did. 
And, and if anything, it made me realize the power of words, um, how, how you can be, how your emotions can be stirred by, by just black pieces on, on white paper. I felt a lot during that book. I've read it so many times that I, I, I still feel it. I still feel that injustice when she, she goes to the school or a horrible cousin is, is, uh, makes her take the blame for causing all the trouble. It, there's emotions are stirring within you. And uh, as I say, my hormones were kicking in at the time. So they were, they were going hell for leather inside my system. Charlotte Bronte um, famously published under the name of Cura Bell because it was sort of seen at the time that women couldn't be published writers, etc. And we've already touched upon this with the audience that you have, but do you, do you object to being classed as women's fiction? I, I'm putting air quotes around that and, and like kicklet because it seems that some books such as yourself, other authors such as yourself kind of get put into this um, sort of category that they don't really deserve. It's almost disregarded as frivolous when they're not. Yeah, it's it's a weird one. I mean, um, I I don't object to the the the, the chicklet thing, but I'm not chicklet. To me, chicklet was stories about twenty year olds living down in London, doing jobs in PR, flat sharing. That isn't me. And I I know that Katie Katie Ford kind of uh, once said that we're 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 more the old boiler lit rather than chiclet. Um, it just, it doesn't apply to me at all. Um, I think people think because we've got a happy ending that there is no substance in our books. And, um, you know, apart from short of raping an Alsatian in some of my books, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of darkness in there. You know, I write about life, there's murder, there's, there's incest, there's abuse, there's domestic abuse, sexual abuse. But because you have the happy ending, you're, you're dismissed as an easy read, a beach read, and there's nothing I can do about it. So I, I just carry on and 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 just ignore the titles. You know, there's no point in getting your your dander up about it. Um, but you know, women, the, the women's fiction thing. I, I I don't know. You don't get men's fiction, do you? Um, I'm happy with just fiction, just contemporary fiction. Romantic comedy fiction. I don't see why we have to stick the the women. I, I see why they do it. It's because they they think it's more likely to appeal to a woman. Um, but you know, I don't I don't know. I read a lot of Lee Child books, and I don't go to the men's fiction category. It's one of those things that we we chip away at a wall. It's like uh, uh, contemporary authors not being seen as lesser beings than than those who write literary classics. Um, it's just a case of a very, very big wall and chipping away at it. And one day we'll see one of our books being nominated for a Booker Prize. They won't get it for a hundred years, but then maybe after that they might get it. It's just, it's just part and parcel of, of the prejudice that, that we work with. And we just write the books and don't enter. We, our energies are better employed writing the books than getting involved with all the politics of it. Quite right. Uh, contemporary fiction is is the term that I like to use as well. And actually, like you say, th there is, I mean, the woman in the middle, it has a happy ending, yeah. but there are some very dark moments in there, particularly what happens to Shay's son. Uh, I don't go into too many details, but that's quite a dark storyline that, that yeah. gets touched on. And, and then there's the dementia of her mother and it's it's hard going at times. There is. I mean, there's my, my editor went, I think we've got too many deaths in this book. 
But I, uh, <clears throat> you know, I in one of my other books, you know, there was a, a guy who was killed and put in a wheelie bin. And I thought she's going to make me take this out. But if, you know, if, if it's an essential part of the plot, it needs to go in. And, and I did argue my case. There's nothing I can do about, you know, that people die in real life. And, and sometimes people are surrounded. They've got, you know, a sister that's died, a father that's died, a son that's died, you know, and we can't avoid it. So I write from life. And, uh, and if, it, if it can happen and does happen, I think it has a place in the book. And you can't have a happy ending without something bad having happened. Otherwise, it's not happy. It's not resolved anything. Yeah. And I, because I write quite dark story, I think this is probably maybe one of my darker, darkest books, this one. But it also gives me the opportunity to redress the balance by writing a lot of light scenes. And, and there were some joyous scenes in that book, ones that I was champing at the bit to get to like when you're watching dr foster and they're all sitting around the table and you're waiting for dr foster to say that she knows that you know her, her husband is, is knocking off a friend's daughter you're it was that moment i was waiting to write and there's a, a lot of lightness to offset because I, I there are books that are very like gently rolling hills and mine are mine are the full alton towers ride and and life has accommodates for people some people don't have many dramas in their life some people do and I, I prefer to write the drama because it allows me to get burrow right into the deep issues the darkness and then also as I say offset it with some stonking lightness with that uplift at the end because you you have to I have to leave my readers <clears throat> with with the ending that they feel everybody's kind of got what they should have in the book or they're on the way to getting it and and feel that this happy ending could be theirs as well, because I write just about ordinary people like they are. It's all about hope, isn't it? Yes, it's all about hope. Without hope, we have nothing. And gin. And gin, yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's your second choice? My, my second book, maybe a curious choice, I think, is The Blinder by Barry Hines, because Barry Hines, oh, everybody will go straight for um, a Kestrel for a name, which was a superb book. But I read The Blinder at school again, and any book that gets a 13-year-old interested in an author when it's about a young kid playing football that I'm not particularly interested in, I, I thought was um, just quite significant. I. I think it's clustered as an apprentice piece, an unrefined piece, but it blew me away about this, this kid from my hometown um, who plays football, who is he's cocky, he's not particularly likeable. Um, he's, you know, he's the, I don't know, he's, he's, he's almost like the, the Wayne Rooney of, um, of his day. A uh, bit dysfunctional, you know, messing about with women. Not that I'm saying Wayne Rooney is, you know, it's just uh, this is um, <laughs> Lenny. Let's let's just say that uh, Lenny Hawk, you know. But you can see the germs of, of the footballers to come in it. Apart from the fact that he gets a tenner, which is quite a lot of money, I think it's about tenner uh, in his wage packet, which is what his dad gets every week for working down the pit. And it's this whole dichotomy in his brain. It's like. His teachers think, oh, you're a bright kid. What are you doing? You know, playing football like this. You should be going to school, university. Um, but he, he, he just loves football. That is his world. I think there's a quote in it where his dad says, you should go off and live on an island. And he says, I have. I found the island. It's, it's a pitch and there's just me, a goal and a ball or something like that in it. And, and there, were, there were moments of 
pure brilliance in this book um, that I, I read it and, and I, I remember reading it and thinking, well, one, Barry Hines was incredibly influential to me because this was a guy who was writing about the North when everybody was writing about the South. I wish I'd learned the lesson uh, earlier on that Barry couldn't write about the South, so he wrote about the North. Um, but he was again a, a one-off. Really, he wasn't. It, you know, the, it wasn't mainstream. He was kicking against the the um, the norm. I think of writing a, a, down the south or a, about middle-class people, and um, and and I, I loved Barry Hines's work. It was set in Barnsley. A Barnsley kid had made it in the literary world. But the, the start, there were moments of just little phrases that I kept reading. There's, I remember it. I, I wish I could. I wish I could find my book, but it's all packed up in in these boxes at the size I'm doing my office up. There's something about um, a light bulb that that shines through the shade like a frosted orange, and it it was like oh, these little tiny sentences that were brilliant and just to me, I wanted to write like that. These little spots of genius that were 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 in the book, and I, this. This is when I started to think, oh, crikey, you know, I'd I'd love to write like that and would write down these little phrases and, and put them in a book. Um, Barry Hines is incredibly influential to me. I was I was part of the committee, actually, to erect a, a statue in his honour, which was a lovely project and ended up, you know, I've become friends now with Ken Loach and I did with Tony Garnett before he sadly died, you know, and uh, David Bradley. I was Billy Casper, he's a pal of mine, you know, and uh, it was a lovely project to get involved with. And, and I, I did that as part of a homage for what Barry had given me. He was a beacon on my path that this lad from Barnsley could do it. You know, it, it means more than if someone in London has made it in the literary world. There's someone in your hometown that people consider a joke town because they all think that we're, we're rough and with, with coal marks round our eyes. It, I have. But it's K-O-H-L. Um, but it meant more that someone could do it. It was like, this is possible. This is possible that I could be a writer. Do you think you've ever come close to writing in the way that he writes? Is, is, there, some, is there a line that you've written that you, you're particularly proud of and think, yeah, that's my Barry Hines line? Um, there was one. Um, which has gone down quite well. Uh, and it is, um, oh, I can't say it. It's, it's something, it's rude. It's something oh, you can about say it. it's she's fine. had, it's fine. <laughs> it was something like she's had more balls in her mouth than a hungry hippo. And it was, and uh, I think that's about as close as I'll ever get. And it has been replicated quite a lot. I've seen it. I thought, hang on a minute, I thought of that line. You know, it's turned up on jokes and things, which, you know, happens. Um, but, um, that's probably about as close to Barry as I ever get. You know, it's there are there are moments sometimes, I'll be honest with you, when I, I, I write something and think, oh crikey, that's that feels like it's not me. It's like I'm a conduit for someone who actually knows what they're doing. And 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 I do get those moments, I, I have to admit, without blowing my own trumpet, where I think, well, that's not bad for you, you know, and and, and it's only little things. You know, there are some people like Joanne Harris who whose books is like a poet, a poem from first page to last. Mine isn't, mine's gritty. It's a bit like Barry's, with these just these little spots of, of real 
poetry within the with, within the book. And I'm quite happy that I, I do write like that, that they just shine out. I would love to write this beautiful descriptive prose like some people like Joe, you know, but I can't, it's, it's not my strength. My strength is more dialogue, is about how people interact with each other. It is not description, but occasionally I, I, get, I get hit by the description stick um, and come out with a corker. And, uh, and it's usually rude. It's usually something to do with hungry hippos uh, and uh, appendages or parts of anatomy. Um, but, you know, that's how I roll. That's how I write. <laughs> Barry Hines wrote um, eight novels over a course of about 35 years or so. Um, you're, you're doing one a year. Um, do you, are, you, are you, is that a pace that you're comfortable with? Do you, do you struggle to book, do one a year or could you do more? No, you see, Barry had a life. And quite uh, <laughs> happily, what was about 150 years between each of the books. Um, I, I find, you know, I, I find that works. And uh, for me, one a year, occasionally two a year. Uh, because, you know, I, I write quite fast when I'm in the mode. Uh, I, I don't, I use it as a full-time job. Um, so I, I, I write to kind of working hours, traditional hours, uh, but I, I do become quite obsessive about uh, work. And, um, and I, I like that. And my readers expect to have one. There's nothing worse than having an author. And I have had my favourite authors where you, you get a book and then not, not one comes out for five years. And if you love them enough, you will, um, you will, you will still be faithful and, and want it. But I, I don't want my readers going off somewhere else. And so I, I want to give my readers, um, a, plus the fact, you know, as soon as I finish one, the next one's queued up in my brain. And I don't think I could not write it. I love writing. I, I, I adore writing. I love it. And one a year gives me plenty of time to go out there and meet people and do my signings. And But I, I enjoy my job. You know, I don't want to take a year off and do crochet. I like writing. So speaking of prolific writers, the next book on your list is a Catherine Cookson. Oh, goodness, yes. My, um, my aunts came down from Scotland and um, used to come down with big boxes of, big bags of books they'd read on the coach. And if they were um, going out anywhere, they'd stay for a month. So they brought a month's supply of Catherine Cookson's with them and said, have you read her? And I said, no, no. And my aunt gave me this book, The 15 Streets. Oh, goodness me, I, oh, I, I, it blew me away. This wonderful story. I mean, it, like whatever I'd felt there, my emotions with Jane Eyre, this book, oh, it ripped my heart out of my chest and stitched it back up again and stuffed it back. It was the most beautiful story. And, and Catherine Cookson, to me, is, is another beacon on my path, like, like Barry Hines, because she didn't start writing professionally until she was in her 40s. She was a woman and she was from the Northeast. And she was writing, even though I don't write sagas, I don't write historical, she was, she was writing about the people she was with. She was using the dialect like Barry was. And it meant, it meant as much to me that she was a woman doing it and that had, had broken through the, the barriers and, and was loved throughout the world. And, I'm about, I think, about 125 million books behind her in sales. But, you know, I, I, I was worrying 
that when I was kind of in my mid thirties or whatever, that these young chick lit writers that were coming out were very young. And I thought I've missed the ball. I, I should have started. And then when I read that Catherine Cookson didn't start, which I didn't realize until I was kind of in my mid thirties myself, how old she was when she started writing. It made me think, oh my God, there's hope for me. Yeah, I can catch up. And that's what I did. When I hit 40, I thought it's now or never, you know, we need to do this or forget it and go back and, and work in an office. And so I just gave it my all because people like Barry and Catherine had, had made it happen for themselves. They'd done it. And so there was someone there who had, who had cut, a, cut a path through the weeds and said, you know, it's this is possible. And that's all I needed to know. This is possible. So what, what happens in the 15 streets? What's the plot? The, um, it's about, um, the, the protagonist is a man really. Uh, he's called John O'Brien and a uh, big strapping, lovely man, very, very poor family. And his, um, his, his mum is very proud of him. He becomes a gaffer at the shipyards where his, his father never did, you know, he's, uh, and his father thinks he's getting a bit above himself. And John falls in love with his younger sister's teacher, Mary, who, well, their worlds might have been separated by barbed wire because she is well-to-do, uh, a family are well-to-do. And it's this love story between John and Mary. Um, but John is then accused of something that, his, um, that, is, that is terrible. And his younger sister has an accident and, and there's a lot of drama in this, this story. Um, uh, and a, a little bit of the supernatural as well. And it's these two people who really love each other, but they can't be together. He comes from the 15th Street, which is an incredibly poor area. And, and she comes from, you know, that one of the, the, the posh houses. And it's a romance. It's a, it's a romantic story, but it's a real social portrait of, of, um, of what uh, that area was like at the time. But it's a, it's a beautiful story. It's very intricate and, oh, it's, it's gorgeous. It, it, it gives me the shivers even thinking about it. But as, as the young people of today would say, it's got all the feels. Yeah. It gives me all the feels. You know, it's, it's got everything. You know, these neighbours move in next door to the most spiritualists. And as a very Catholic family, they kind of, ooh, don't, don't want to have anything to do with them. But it's just full of these beautiful characters that you take to your heart. And John O'Brien is, is an amazing character. You know, you read it and you just fall in love with him. He's lovely. And never, never before that had I wanted two characters, apart from Jane Eyre and Rochester, to get together so much. And yes, big tick, happy ending. <laughs> Lovely, beautiful story. Catherine Cookson wrote, uh, as I said, she read over a hundred novels, um, but didn't start until she was in her forties. She finished, uh, well, she, I say she finished, she carried on writing up to her death in her nineties. Do you think that that's for you? Is that for you? Are you gonna keep publishing books and keep going? Or do you fancy a nice retirement one day? <laughs> You know, I, I, um, I was very lax and just sent up a pension a couple of years ago, which at the age when people are drawing theirs and uh, my financial advisor said, well, what age are you going to retire? And uh, I, I'd know, it's never crossed my mind. You know, maybe if I worked in one of the awful jobs I've had in my past, I would have thought as soon as possible. 
But I can't imagine, I'll drop, I'll drop on the job. There'll be a, a half, it panics me that there'll be a half written novel that I'll not get my advance for. Um, but I, I, think I'll, I think I'll drop on the job, to be honest. I, at this moment, I can't see me stopping writing at all. I suppose there'll come a point when I slow down or I, I as other authors who have written a lot of books think, you know, I haven't got anything else to say. Um, but I, I can't, that isn't even on my horizon yet. The books are just queued up inside my brain. Um, but, you know, you, I, don't, I don't know is the answer to that. But I will be drawing the pension at some point, if I'm working or not. <laughs> well, that is good news that we've got plenty more to come. Uh, what is your next choice? My next choice is Oh, the Enchanted Wood by Enid Blight. Gone right back to one of the first books that I ever um, I, I ever read. And uh, as, as in all of these books, it's not just the story. It's, it's how I came to discover them and the feelings that I had when I was reading them. My parents don't read. They're not books at all, never, never booky people. But my grandparents were massive readers. My nana was a great Mills and Boone aficionado. My, my granddad read large print cowboy books. And they bought me books because they loved books. And so they bought me books and they bought me Enid Blyton books. And when I read, they, I, the first book they ever bought me was an Amelia Jane book about a naughty doll. And then the second one was this, The Enchanted Wood. And I was lost. I was in this world where these trees were, were saying, wisher, wisher above your head and were dark green. And, and I, I loved these stories. I was transported into another world. It was the, everything outside me and this book was gone. There was just me and this book on the planet, this beautiful story. Of, and it was great fun. Um, you know, going up the trees and, and meeting all these people and these lands at the top. It was it was quite influential. I always had a little drop of magic in my books. I, I always liked that element in books. And um, sometimes I write it so that if you are a non-believer in that sort of thing, you can explain it away. And if you are a believer, then you'll accept that, oh, there's something weird going on here. But I've always been fascinated by magic and I wanted this land to exist so much. But I, I loved Enid Blyton. I, I don't care about the, the politics and how unpopular she has become over the years for stuff outside her writing. She has given pleasure to so many kids and she influenced me so much. When you read her stories, they're, they're quite simplistically written, very stylish. And, and I, I loved I loved that. I, I read them very quickly. I, I can't remember a time before I didn't read but there, even now, I've, I've kept the old copies of them, and I can read them, and I, I think, oh, these are, these are really beautifully crafted books without having to use all the, the complicated language, which was quite interesting when I came to write a, a quick reads um, for a project the year before last, I think it was, uh, where I, I had to write a, a story that was stylish and just flawed without using any complicated language. And I looked back to the Enid Blyton books, and I thought, she can do that quite easily. Why can't I? And did. Uh, I was going to say, you. Uh, I was going to ask about, have you revisited them since your childhood? But you, you have. You've And, and you, you were doing it regularly. Did you do it with your own children? Did you pass them on to them? Oh, yes. I, they, well, they were never readers either. I'm, I'm kind of hoping that that will, that will change because, you know, I read all the books 
excuse the pun about, you know, have your books every, we, there was never a household that was more booky than mine. We had bookshelves. There were things that weren't, well, even stuff like this, pen pot holders that were in the shape of books, tables in the shape of books, everything in the shape of books. I read to the kids, they were bought books and they left to their own devices. They just didn't want to read. Um, but, you know, with a lot of boys, it, they, they come to it later and they might find something that interests them. My lad's off to university at the weekend and, and he'll be doing a lot of the dry reading. I'd like them to read for pleasure. I, I can't imagine a life without not having books in it for, for pleasure. Um, but I, yes, I, I read to them and even now I'll pick them up and just read a chapter um, every so often, you know, just look at them. If I'm moving them like I have been in my office and came across them and just sat down and read them the, and that and the, the fork of the faraway tree and they're just beautiful books, just lovely stories and you, you, the, the memories revisit you of just sitting in the living room and my dad with the TV on, but I couldn't hear it because I was engrossed in the world of Enid Blight. I, I loved her, I loved her stories. It's, it's interesting that even, even somebody as booky as you, uh, an author has these young men in her life that she can't get to read. Um, it, it seems, I don't know what it is. Uh, I mean, I, personally myself, I was a massive reader as a child. I did kind of fall out of it in my late, mid to late teens and then went back into it. My godson, he, he's doing what you were just describing. You can talk to him, but he won't hear it because he's got his head in a book. And I hope to God he oh, doesn't God. fall out of it. That would be great. I, I tried to tempt my son with an Adrian Mall. I said, you will love this, read this. And he did and he really enjoyed it. And then he slipped off and they've got mates, they've got different priorities and maybe, maybe they'll come to it. I really hope so. But as I say, maybe it'll skip a generation. My parents didn't read and yet their parents, well, my dad's parents were massive readers right up to when they died. You know, they, they'd go down to the library and come back with a big carrier bag full of books on, on, the, uh, on, on the bus. And they loved them. They wouldn't, my Nana was never without a book in her hand. Never without a Mills and Boone in her hand, never. Uh, is it two boys that you have? I have two boys, yes, very close ah. in age. So about 17, yes. 18 sort of, yeah. So maybe, hope, maybe in their twenties though, once they get through university. No, they're, they're 20. My, my son's kind of had a couple of years off with COVID. Oh, I see. So, uh, so they're 20, 21 and 22 at the moment. So we've got time. We've got time. You know, <laughs> I could threaten to cut them out of the will unless they read a book. That might yeah. <laughs> put, 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 put the secret to a fortune inside a book, write a code inside the book so they have to read them. <laughs> that, might, that might work. Read this book and get some beer money. Yes, that yeah. might work. <laughs> What's your next choice? Um, my next choice is Five Little Pigs by Agatha Christie. Um, and the reason I, I picked this book was um, I used to go to Sunday school and uh, had a, a live next door to the old lady who took me there. And when they had a church jumble sale, we were always in charge of the white elephant stall. And um, I was only a little girl at the time. And uh, there was an Agatha Christie book on there called Five Little Pigs which I, I bought for Penny and took home and read this book and there I lighted a love for Agatha Christie and um, love, love this story. It's, it's about a painter who's poisoned 
about 16 years ago. His wife was accused of it um, and died in prison, still protesting her innocence. And her daughter contacts Hercule Poirot and say, please try and find out what happened. And so we're working, we're working historically and working Hercule, oh, I love Hercule Poirot is, is working historically, uh, trying to um, delve into people's memories of 16 years ago. Um, and, um, and what this book taught me, apart from one, is that I must buy everything and read it that Agatha Christie has ever, and I have, um, was also that it didn't matter that I could read a book over and over again. Uh, it didn't matter that I remembered who'd done it. It was the how that was the important thing. I could, I could remember who'd done it. I've read this book so many times. I've read them all numerous times. And more often than not, I can remember who the murderer is or the, you know, the, the thief is. But it's, it, I read it now, watching the drama unfold and how the little clues along the way are placed. And that in itself taught me a lesson because a lot of my books are very, very, um, very uh, layered. And, and I, you, there's a mystery to be solved. There's, um, and you, you can't just announce it at the end. You have to allow your reader to follow the trail of crumbs that you lead. Um, and if you leave too many, uh, to a big bunch of them then it's like oh I knew that right from the off and so there's a skill set in how you place these breadcrumbs and and I can't say that I consciously um sat down and analyzed every book and it's one of those things that comes to you by reading um and uh, and processing these sorts of books and it helps you in turn pace your own books so that those breadcrumbs are nicely spaced out uh, so I learned a lot from Agatha Christie books. Plus, I've always been an art deco girl. I love that world and, and Hercule Poirot and full of lovely characters. I've, and, and it was all to do with that jumble sale. Again, Five Little Pigs, I conjure up this white elephant stall where I, I have very happy memories of going to church and these wonderful people that I went with. But yeah, Agatha Christie is marvellous for a, for a teacher. What you're saying about those um, breadcrumbs as well, I think, although obviously you've read it in uh, Five Little Pigs, this crime story, it isn't necessarily something that has to just be about crime. You've got it in uh, The Woman in the Middle where um, we won't we won't spoil anything, but th there's early on something is referenced around Shay's past, and yeah. we as a reader don't know what it is, and and it's not a it's not a I mean it's not a mystery to Shay, it's not a mystery to the people that she loves necessarily, but to the reader it's not it, it we learn about it gradually, and, and you kind of do that by dropping these little breadcrumbs here and there. Yes, thank you, Agatha Christie, um, <laughs> because. Uh, that's, I wasn't calling you Agatha Christie. No, no, I was, you know, like, oh, thank you, Agatha Christie. <laughs> um, no, it was thank you, Agatha Christie, because she taught me how to do that. <laughs> Gosh, she's sarky. Um, you know, it was, uh, with, with Shay's story, um, you, you, have, you have to kind of intimate that there's something in her past that she hasn't quite resolved. And, and I had to be, I had to space those, those little clues out. Uh, until we get to the big reveal, what actually is in her past? What massive thing happened to her when she was 16 that her family had to move away? 
um, and she's she never talks about it. You know what was it? Um, and uh, and hopefully, because the world's worst thing is reading a review and somebody says, "Oh, I, I knew what was, I knew what happened, I knew what it was." When I read page two, and you think, "No, you didn't." Um, but you know, you don't want to give too many clues away. You, it's almost a game when you've got something like that with Agatha Christie. It's almost a game where. You, you want to guess it before Hercule Poirot, but at the same time, you don't, because you want, you want to be given the reveal. You want him to say to you, this is what it's all about. So it's a, it's a, it's a hard balancing game. And uh, hopefully one day I might get it just about right where people didn't guess what it was. But as I say, you can't just, the world's worst is just no clues whatsoever. And then there's just big information dump at the end where you feel robbed because you haven't been given the opportunity to guess what it is. Readers, they're never happy. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right, though. You do, you do come into these books and you, you, you want to work out what the mystery is and you might flick back and just sort of read a few bits again. I was reading um, another book. I won't, I won't name what it is, but I worked something out before the sort of detectives in it did. Yes. And A, I was quite pleased with myself. But then I thought, yeah. well, hang on, this isn't realistic. These detectives are very intelligent people. They would have absolutely spotted this before me in real life. So it kind of leads you to this sort of, like you say, it's that weird balance. You've got to get it right. Yeah. Would you ever yes. write a crime novel, like an out and out crime novel? I'm writing one now. Yeah. I've, I've wanted, it's just I never got around to it because I'm so busy with these books, but... I, I wanted to write a, quite a hard-hitting one. As I said, we've always had to strip a couple of murders out of my books. But as, as I was writing it, um, I, I slipped back into my, my world of, of the, and, and rid, ridiculously, my crime novelist turning out to be less crime than my other books. Um, but I'm enjoying doing it. You know, it's a different way of, of, of thinking, of, of working stuff out because you have to kind of switch your mindset. And I didn't want to produce a crime book and somebody say, well, I knew it was her anyway, writing that. So I thought, well, I might as well blur the edges. I might as well work with it and say, it's quite unmistakably me that's writing it, but with a different hat on. A bit like Catherine Cookson wrote under Catherine Marchant, and there were um, a little bit more Mills and Booney, her books, they weren't as deep, I don't think, but they were quite, she, she didn't even bother trying to, trying to cover it up or didn't write under, a, you know, science fiction. Um, she just took one step out of the world that she was in, and that's what I've done. I've just shifted, just taken one step to the side and, and written this book, which is well, about three quarters done now. Um, really enjoyed it, but but it is it is softer than I initially wanted it to be. I wanted it to be quite brutal, but I'm, I think I'm just too nice a person, really. Okay, it's not that jokes started to creep in, and you can't have that. You you needed to separate the two worlds, and I found I didn't want to. I was quite happier writing it as as me, but is, it is will that... be. Is that going to be the next? Is that going to be the next Millie Johnson, or is it uh, more of a side uh, project until it's ready? I think it's a side project. I, I always wanted to see if I could do it. I think that was the the, the main. It was a, an exercise really to see if I could do it, and uh, and I can. Um, so I've no idea. I mean, it might. I haven't even sent it to an agent yet. They might. She might look at it and think, 
God, this is pants, you know, just stick with what you know and just forget about it. But I did want to get to the end of it and I've really enjoyed doing it. Um, a set of recurring characters that um, I don't want to let go of, that all have stories that hopefully will um, be filled in um, their, their backgrounds, their lives will be filled in as, as the books go on. But I, I, I can't see me not, see me dropping the world I'm in. I'd be stupid, you know, I'm, I'm doing really well at the books. I, I don't want to just abandon this and do something else. I'd, I'd have to do them in tandem. But I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. And I don't know what's going to happen. You know, if, if the, the crime book comes out there and I'm given a two million pound advance, then there might be a shifting of thought. But I doubt it. <laughs> what, what's your uh, next choice? My next book is Watermelon by Marion Keys, um, which is about a woman who, on the day that she gives birth, uh, a husband tells her that he's having an affair and he's going to leave her. And she she's terrified as you would be and goes back to her family I think it's the first outing of the Walsh family I don't know if Marion when she wrote Watermelon um, had the idea that the Walsh family were going to go on to uh, to fill so many other books but when I read Watermelon and thank goodness I didn't see the TV adaptation before I'd read the book because it was nothing like the book at all the book was superb and for the first time, I read a book that was in the style that I wanted to write in. You know, it was because I would never be able to write in the style of Barry or, or, or you know, um, Charlotte Bronte. But here was this modern day young woman writing. I could hear a voice in my head and a little machine gun um, conversations between people. And it was, it was, it was, oh my God, this is, this is what I want to write like. That was it. And I, I aped the style. It's when I started writing books, I aped this style. Um, it never works, but it, it, I found my own style eventually. And it was a great marker on my path to writing that Marion Keyes had, had made, had shifted me onto another path of almost conversational and uh, funny, wittier, just I wasn't frightened to say what was in my heart or how people felt, however crude or funny it was. And so for all sorts of reasons, one, because that was my first introduction to Marion Keys. Oh, oh, I loved this great story, uh, a, con a, a contemporary, a big contemporary story about women of my age. Um, and uh, as I say, it taught me, it, it taught me how to write differently, how to write more the prose that was in my head that I write how I wanted to to say things what I wanted to say to the people um, of my own age and so it was um it was a, a, a rather a revelation reading Marion Keyes's book and as you say it's the first in the Walsh family series which has has grown and grown whether you know planned or not we don't know uh, but it's become this almost quite a famous family now in Irish literature. Yes. Is there, are there characters that you've written that you would like to bring back and explore their lives a bit more? I do, I do that. Uh, I cross over, I bring them back. I sometimes drop them in like Easter eggs. 
just here and there. So people will go, oh my goodness, that's blah, blah from book, blah, blah. Um, and, um, and certainly in the last couple of books with, uh, with White Wedding, um, there were three brides in that and I took one of them and brought her back and, and gave her a story in A Winter Flame. It was a, a cousin actually of hers in Winter Flame. Uh, and then I brought her back again in um, The uh, Mother of All Christmases. And so, yes, I, I do. It's, it's not often because when I, when I do a book, I kind of wrap the, the ribbon on it and leave it because I've left them in a good place. I don't particularly want to take them out of their happy ending and drop them in peril again. With her, it was an exception because the story was all about her being becoming pregnant. So it wasn't a, a bad storyline. It wasn't her being in, in any peril. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I know. I, I'm always asked, will you bring blah, blah, back? Will you bring blah, blah, blah? One of my um, anti-heroines was, was an awful woman called Jo McLean. I hated her with a vengeance. Um, but I also loved her because you, you, you love writing these characters. Never meant to bring back. And I did bring her back because I had the idea. Sometimes you're writing a book and you think, oh, my goodness, that's her. I can plop her right in there. And that's great when that happens. And sometimes little incidental characters you you don't want them to be any bigger than uh, mere cameos and they grow and grow and grow and end up becoming their own story like a one of the mother-in-laws who was a terrible old bat um in in one of my books and i i ended up wanting her to have a happy ending um and uh, brought her back uh, and she married in her 70s or 80s the the local fish and chip magnate. And uh, and I, I loved writing these characters, but they, they take you by surprise. Sometimes you don't plan it. You just think that they haven't said or done everything that you want to say. Um, and I, when people ask me, will you bring blah, blah, blah? I say, I haven't got any plans, but I never say never because I can be writing a book and think, well, this actually would work with that character from that book. I can bring them back. So yes, I do it all the time, but not, not as Marion has done with, with her family. But the, the crime book is turning out to be like that, where you've got a, a set of characters who you know you will revisit. At the moment, they're, they're quite sketchy. And with, with every book that comes, I've got this idea in my head that you will learn about their backstories and, and what makes them tick. Very exciting. I haven't done that before, really, to that extent. Well, I'm going to be one of those readers now and tell you who I want you to bring back. And that is um, Shay's sister, Paula. I, I need to oh. need to know more about her. And, and there's got to be something. I mean, she's vile, horrible. <laughs> she is vile and she is based on someone very, you know, I dare say it because I'll be sued. But I, I'd never had brothers or sisters, so I can't understand the dynamic. Um, and always wanted them. But I have noticed as my friends have got older and the care of elderly parents has fallen to the children that there always seems to be one who does more than the other. You know, it's like, again, as I say, I write from life and there yeah. are people who adore their parents and will do anything for them. And there are others that are just waiting them to shuffle off so that they can claim the inheritance and not be bothered with it. That's, that's the sad reality of things. I have a sister who is a year and a half older than me, so we're quite quite close in age. And I'm, and that's not the case with Paula and Shay. There's quite a few years between them, and so I'm always quite. Uh, that's a dynamic that I don't know. 
But the one that I'm always obsessed with is because I, I would just love to know what it was like to have a brother growing up. I would have loved to have known what that was like. And so I read, I'll read books where there's two brothers in it. I, I'm, yeah, I'll read it. I, I want to know. So I think we all, yeah. we all get a bit like that, don't we? We all want to know what we missed out on a bit. Yes, yes. Um, I, I, I suppose the nearest you've got is cousins. You know, when we're talking about the joint grandparents, that's, that seems weird to me, that we, we both have the same grandparents. Uh, and that's the closest I'll ever get to it. I, I just can't understand it. But I, I'm almost like a, a woman outside a, a big glass bowl, really trying to knock in, because I, I want to go into that world and find out what it's like to have a sibling. I just, I can't imagine. Which is why I had two children very, very close together in age. But they are so different. It's like having two only children. So I can't <laughs> even see that dynamic, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, they, they fascinate me, siblings. They fascinate me. And those two, as I say, because, well, my dad and his own brother, there's 16 years between them. So my dad had been working for two years when my uncle arrived and, and they aren't close at all. They, you know, they, they've got no relationship really, even though they're siblings. Mm. There's, 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 no, there's no connection between them. They were a man and a baby. And, it might as well have been his well a, a son that he walked out on really he's going to say not his son because he wouldn't have walked out on it but you know what i mean there's there's no there's no, no bond growing up no no what's your final choice my final choice i can't pick um, <laughs> so i've gone for, I, I, well i i can pick but it's any mills and bull from the 1980s um, because uh, any one of them that I'd read, um, and uh, there's a, 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 I'll cut to the chase on the story behind this. As I say, my nana was very loved Mills and Boone, and I, to my shame, thought that they were old women's books that I would never read. And we went on holiday to Malta. Took my nana; she'd never been abroad before. She took a full suitcase of Mills and Boone with her. We arrived at the destination. All our suitcases had gone on a different plane. We had no clothes. Only one suitcase had arrived and it was my Nana's bookcase, right? So we're sitting on the veranda in these thick woolly clothes uh, in, in, in August, mid-August. And my Nana was, all she wanted to do was sit in the sun and read the book on the veranda. And she I had no books. I was, I was off my head with boredom. And she said, do you want to read one of these? And I went, absolutely not. Ugh. And she and I did out of sheer desperation to fill the time, and I fell in love with it. I absolutely loved it. This playboy, who's a very on PC now. I don't care. I loved it. This very on PC who, uh, to settle a debt, this guy offers him uh, his daughter to get married because uh, he needs a wife, and um, and she to get her dad out of the trouble um, accepts his proposal of marriage. Um, I loved it. You know, I love all that bodice ripping stuff. And I, I don't care if they're on PC. It was brilliant, brilliantly written. Nobody did anything out of consent. Um, the second one I read, I never forget, I never forget the plot of this one. Totally different. Bloke in a harem, a shake, model, ex-model with a limp. Um, they get together, and um, but it was a different story, but it was the same formula, if you like. But I I such was the skill of the writer that I thought they're not going to get together um, because the, the writer had made it so much that the love rival was going to come on and she didn't. They got together in the end, read another one, read another one. And even though they were all very different, 
they were ultimately the same formula. And I started to relax into the story that I knew that was they were going to get together at the end. Uh, I didn't have to worry about that. I could just enjoy the story unfolding. <clears throat> and that, that predictability also was a great lesson to me as well. Because I write, it's not an insult to me, I do get it. Oh, it's predictable and they're always going to get together at the end. Absolutely right. I would be lynched by my readers if they didn't get together at the end. I love that. All I want them to do is enjoy the journey because they, they know they all know they're on the bus that's got Rome on the front, but I might take them via the Eiffel Tower and the reader's going, what's going on here? They're not going to get together. How on earth can they get together after what has just happened? And then the skill, hopefully, of me is to take them to Rome from and think, ah, it's all all right. And, and not everybody wants that big surprise ending or the, the ending that doesn't wrap up or that the, the reader is supposed to make up their own ending. My books are, I will take you on a journey. I will give you what you want. I don't care if you guess that they're going to get together at the end because they are going to get together at the end. I would be lynched if they didn't get together at the end because people have bought into my name and that's what they expect. And, and that predictability has made my career. So I'll take it all day long. And that was all from reading the Mills and Boom books and by, in, by being influenced by these wonderful stories. I think as well, a lot of, I mean, people say about the predictability of say Mills and Boom books, and there's a bit of a snobbery around them, uh, even now. And people, I think it's not, as you said, it's not about the ending necessarily. It's about the journey. If it was about the ending, read page one and read page 350. Don't, you know, <laughs> but read yeah. the whole thing and you can enjoy the story and just take yourself somewhere else for a while. There's nothing wrong with something being predictable, I would say. No, and they're, they're very difficult to write as well. I had a go. That was going to be my next I question. Yeah, I can't do it. I can't do it. There's a skill set and I have friends who write them. And, uh, and it's, it's their bread and butter, it's what they're comfortable, it's what they do. I can't do it. I find them so incredibly difficult to do. And my, my hats go off to these writers who make it look so easy. And, you know, sod the haters, because these books give so much pleasure to people. And, and what, what, um, what I learned over the last few years is not everybody wants that taxing, intricate story. There are people who are, you know, maybe not as as sharp as they used to be or in hospital and they just want something to enjoy a nice story to enjoy and and Mills and Boone are, are absolutely brilliant for that they are I'm, I'm so glad that they have sustained for so long because they deserve to and you know I, I do quite I admit that I, I did have that same prejudice when I was younger, born of another, a born of no information whatsoever, just the, the what I'd read, what I'd heard, and and I um, I've since made up for that by being their greatest advocate. I think I think they're a wonderful set of books, and sod the haters, you know, they are great. And if you you just en you read and enjoy what you want to read and enjoy, and don't diss it for anybody else, you know, I uh, I love them, I love them. I always love that. Um, so we, I used to work in a bookshop many years ago and we had customers who would come in um, every two weeks when there were new Mills and Booms out. And we'd, we'd, we'd get our delivery in and we'd set aside one of each for them because they came in and they bought all of them. And we always had a little laugh because there's always a shake. 
always a book about a shake. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you see, women like that, you know, they, they like the Playboy. Yeah. And they like the shake. Like the, even the, the early Christian greys with the helicopter and the, and there was someone saying, oh, let her be a woman and stand up on her own two feet. You know, some women don't want that. They want to dream about someone piloting into their lives and transporting them to a, a mansion. I'd take it. And why not? Why not? If that's your fantasy, why not? Don't tell um, people what their fantasy is. Let them have their own. Quite right, too. Which, if, if I made you pick, this is kind of the desert island disc moment. If I oh, made you okay. pick just one of these seven books uh, that you could right. only have uh, back on your shelf, on your empty bookshelf behind you, I'm going to let you put one of these seven. Which one will it be? It would be, it would be Jane Eyre, without a doubt. It's, it's a book that, as I said to you before, I've never got tired of. It's got everything. It's been a massive influence on my life. It's a beautiful beautiful book um i know it's a a, a pick that a, a lot of authors um have but you know for for very good reason it, it changed my life it changed where i lived it um it it was everything to me it's it's the one book that i i just do never get tired of so jane eyre without without a question uh, you've already told us a little bit about what you're doing at the moment, your crime novel that you're writing, but what is next for Millie Johnson? Are you working on next year's book? Yes, I am. And you'll laugh. It's about three siblings. <laughs> We're all very, um, very different. We could say it was about a shake well, then. <laughs> there's no shakes in it. Um, but there's, uh, there are three sisters who are, all, there's a big age gap between them, so they've never gelled. Um, and they, they, um, the younger sister has been absent for ages. She's a bit of a dysfunctional mess. The two other sisters are very different. Don't again, don't keep in contact with each other. But um, they have to, they have to convene and clear out their mum's house when, when their mum's died. And and it's all the story about rediscovering. There's lots of secrets in this book. Things that they never really explained. They're, why why they're such three messes really um I, I don't plan a book so when anyone asks me what it's about i haven't a clue i have to make something up uh, I, I do Shh, don't tell my editor this but i do and then she they draw a cover based on the claptrap i've told them and then when i get to the end of the book and think who are these people i've no idea who these characters are so i just all, that's all i've got at the moment these these three women who have convened and um and there's there's the the, the mother's voice overhead she she's the one that will unravel her voice will unravel what's happened to them um over the over the, the whole childhood years they've got everything they have money they had everything but still they've grown up quite isolated creatures and i'm just hoping because i don't plan i'm at that stage where i'm writing and thinking please god please make all these threads come together they have done 19 times so far, so I'm, I'm just hoping that for the 20th, you know, we can still carry on. That's the annoying thing about not planning, because you, you, don't, you don't know if you're, you're on a, a going to hell in a handcart. But touch wood, it will all come together. I'm, I just, I'm just calling it Three Sisters at the moment as a working title. Um, I, I think I nabbed it off Anton Chekhov. I'm sure he'll <laughs> forgive me because it's, that it's not got the emotional 
content so that it will be changed at some point. But in my head, it's just called Three Sisters. How long will it take you to write, do you think? Um, well, I've, I've fannied about a bit, to be honest with you, because I've, I usually do the first draft very, very quickly. But because I've, I'm, we're decorating, I'm trying to get my office done. Um, it will take me a bit longer than it, it should do. But in the next couple of weeks, I will be sitting down here and not writing little notes. I will start in earnest and I, I bet you I get the first draft done in in three weeks to a month. That's has happened and should happen. That's what I like to happen with the first draft. And then I can start working backwards and patting everything into shape. But it will be it will be done for Christmas. It will be my editor's Christmas present, I hope. I hope. <laughs> I'm not swearing or, or, or got my fingers crossed behind my back, but yeah, the, I reckon it will be a, it'll be a, yeah, Christmas, Christmas, the first draft, easily. Millie Johnson, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thank you. I've I've had a lovely time talking. It's what it's what I was put on earth to do. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. My guest on this episode of Shelf Life was Millie Johnson, and her latest novel, The Woman in the Middle, is available to order now at burtsbooks.co.uk. Press subscribe to join me next time when another author explores their shelf life.